0: Hi, welcome to the second episode of our UCL Grand Challenges podcast, which you can find on our website. My name is Nina, and I have with me today my colleague Siobhan Morris and Professor Anthony Costello. He was formerly the director of the Department of Maternal, Newborn, Child, and Adolescent Health at the WHO. And he's now back at UCL as a professor of global health and sustainable development. He's also a member of our Grand Challenges advisory group. Thanks, Anthony, for taking the time to speak with us. We'll be discussing your newly published book, The Social Edge. Would you mind telling us a bit more about the book?
1: Thank you. Good to chat to you, Nina, Siobhan. Yeah, it's called The Social Edge, and it's about sympathy groups, which are the smallest social units beyond the family. And you might well ask, what is a paediatrician and doctor doing straying into anthropology? And the reason is, and I explain this in the book, is from 30 years ago I've been working in a lot of low-income settings where women would deliver at home and uh, have very high mortality rates for their babies and we wondered what to do about it and we tried various approaches, including health education in a conventional sense where you give instructions to people. But then we... After a big trial that didn't work, giving information to women in the slums of Kathmandu, we heard about a programme in Bolivia which was mobilising women's groups to talk about childbirth and newborn care and the like. It seemed to be working, but they hadn't properly evaluated it. And this was nearly 20 years ago we started this work where we decided to do what's called a cluster-randomised controlled trial. And that means that you randomise different bits of the population to get either women's groups or not. And we did this in a very remote area of Nepal. And that's what led us to get really interested in this subject because completely against our expectations, the group showed a very big impact on death rates. And then we repeated it in a bigger study in India showing the same. Likewise, we've done studies now in many different locations and the conclusion was that mobilising in groups had a big impact. We'll maybe talk later about some other work we've done looking at impacts now on diabetes but I got interested in this so I wrote the book firstly to describe sympathy groups and why they might be important, secondly to describe our work but thirdly to come up with this idea that development in countries is much more about trust than just individual development. You know, we live in a very individualised world. Mm. In economics, we're individuals. Everyone talks about the selfish gene that we're all in it for ourselves. Ayn Rand talks about the virtue of selfishness. But actually, through human history, cooperation and small group activity has been fundamental.
2: Could you maybe talk about some of the challenges that you've faced when replicating the experiments you just talked about in different cultural and social contexts. Yeah,
1: that's a very good point. So we did it in Nepal, Mm. and we had 12 large areas where we ran women's groups compared to 12 areas where we didn't, and the areas were big. They were about 10,000 population. They were 60 square kilometres. This was in a very remote district, no motorable roads virtually, And when we got the result, we were surprised and we'd set up another study, as I said, in the forests of India, in Jharkhand and Orissa, where death rates of babies was even higher. And that showed an even bigger impact. So we were thrilled because the first study, it could have arisen by chance. You never know with these. Mm. And of course, science should not be based on just one experiment. You need to do more. (laughs) Then we did it in Bangladesh, in half a million population. And actually, the result showed no impact.
2: Ah, interesting.
1: Uh, I mean, my Bangladeshi colleagues were very upset.
2: Of course. (laughs) And
1: my (laughs) paediatrician colleague called Kishwa Azad, who's a fantastically feisty woman, sort of hit me and then said, why is it not working here? And I said, well, maybe they don't chat in Bengal like they do. So she hit me again and said, of course we know how to chat. (laughs) And I said, well, maybe the women don't network in the same way. Mm. Maybe it's too conservative. She said, rubbish because it was the same in the less conservative areas. And then I said, well, maybe we got the dose wrong. You know, in drug trials, you have to get the dose right. And sure enough, we discovered that the number of women's groups was about a third, the coverage was one third of what we'd done in Nepal and India. So we repeated the entire trial. It took another three and a half years. Right. And we showed that if you trebled the number of groups that we had an adequate coverage we had a huge impact, actually bigger than the other two trials. So we've done it in Malawi, we've done it in urban areas of Mumbai where we didn't get an impact either because the baseline mortality rates were quite low. But it brought home, when we analysed the whole lot of trials together and took the evidence to the World Health Organisation, they agreed that this was a powerful impact, particularly in rural areas Mm. where there was quite high death rates and that this should be scaled up. And indeed, in India, we showed the results to one of the secretaries of health, Artie Ahuja, who's a lovely person and brilliant. And she said, I love this. I'm going to scale it up in Arisa. Now, Arisa mm. has 50 million people. Yeah. And she's set up, I think, about 140,000 women's groups. And now it's going to scale in the rest of India. Now, mm. we haven't had the same success at scale up in every other country, but it's yeah. gaining momentum.
0: It's great that it's been adopted at WHO level, international level. And I was wondering what else you would like to see internationally building up on this work.
1: Well, then we got interested in saying, look, we've been looking at pregnant women. And we know from our country, you know, the National Childbirth Trust across America, across Europe, women's groups in childbirth and coming together to argue for birth planning and contesting some of the over medicalization of childbirth is not new. You know, we've been doing this for decades. But to me, the interest was, shouldn't this kind of more scientific approach to social interventions be applied to other areas? Mm. Now, we've just finished a trial and, and, well, I'll tell you the results. It's, about to be published. It's a big
2: reveal we're about to get here. Yeah,
1: a big, (laughs) this is a leak. No, but we...
2: You heard it here
1: first. You heard it here first, but we have spent four years also in Bangladesh because we work with the Diabetic Association there. Diabetes is a massive problem across Mm. South Asia. You may not think that is the case, but it is. So once you're above 30 years of age, nearly a third of people will be diabetic or pre-diabetic. Indeed, I heard on the news yesterday that in Britain, you're seeing a massive increase in the number of children with type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. now 7,000 cases recorded. When I was I trained as paediatrics, I never saw a case. So the changing lifestyle, obesity rates in Bangladesh, because of low birth weight, there are other factors there. You're seeing a massive expansion. This is a huge cost on the health service. Of I think course, yeah. 12% of all the NHS budget goes on diabetes. Mm. So we've set up a study. 32 villages got standard care. 32 villages got that plus mobile phone messages going into their phones, which is you know ubiquitous in Bangladesh. And in the third set of villages, 32 villages, we mobilised them. In other words, we recruited local volunteers who were trained up to run groups and they ran women's groups and men's groups. Now, the results are fascinating because in comparison with the control group, the mobile phone group did show a small reduction in diabetes and pre-diabetes after two years. But in the mobilisation group, the effect was huge. I'm not going to say the exact amount because it's got to be published. But it's (laughs) very big and highly significant. And it's really kind of shocked us because I didn't Mm. think we would get that big an effect. Now, there will be sceptics. People will ask why. Can this be replicated elsewhere? Is there something about Bangladesh? Mm. Would it work in the UK? And I think we need to do that kind of work because one of the big arguments of my book is that the social component of medicine is forgotten about. Yes. 95% of all the budget from health care goes on treatment. The NHS isn't really a national health service, it's a national health care service. So when it comes to prevention, I think we need to think out of the box and that we need to do much more scientific work on social interventions like working through groups. In the book I go on to talk, as you know, about 22 experiments that I've kind of plucked out the air that I think need to be done because uh, they could bring great social benefit, but also save a lot of money. Mm.
2: Yeah, you mention in the book that sympathy <clears throat> groups demand a kind of science of their own. So are there any other examples of work going on that you would talk about, apart from the experiments that you suggest in the book? What, yeah, what is I mean, happening not, now?
1: Yeah, bits and pieces. I mean. Obviously, anthropologists down the ages and social scientists have looked at various ways in which groups interact. And, you know, the NGO movement, non-government organisations, is huge in Mm -hmm. in countries, and most of them work with community groups and the like. Whether they've applied a scientific lens to it to really analyse it is another matter. Uh, All right, let me give you one example, which was my first choice of an experiment is loneliness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For all our you know, social media and television and economic improvements and education, a half of all our elderly people are lonely and only have TV as their company. Mm-hmm. They don't choose this, but as we've moved from a kind of extended family structure to a more nuclear family, they may suffer bereavement or divorce or lose their jobs or their family move away or whatever. So we've got this massive problem. And we also know that if you're lonely, you're more likely to be depressed. And if you're lonely and depressed, you're more likely to have worse diabetes, Mm. chronic diseases, more likely to smoke. It's all a kind of vicious circle. Now, we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on drugs and hundreds of billions of dollars or pounds or francs, on splitting the atom. Mm, So there's massive science going on. How many randomised controlled trials of different strategies to tackle loneliness have been done? Mm. And the answer is zero. I know of one that's being approached in Australia right now. Okay. And, in fact, another thing that Australia did, I don't think they've done a trial, which was quite interesting, is they came up with this idea of men's sheds, which I refer to, they discovered that there are lots of lonely old men who were going off and just drinking alone or whatever. Mm. And they form these sheds yeah. where men came together because men are a bit different from women. I don't know if you've noticed this. But, you know, women... It has are,
2: come to my attention, Women yes. are
1: comfortable <laughs> in groups. Women operate in circles, men in ladders. But men are not so good at opening up about their feelings and mm. stuff. But if you put them in a shed with a bunch of tools and a task then they'll, they'll start chatting, you know. I've always noticed, I've got two sons and a daughter, and, you know, if you ask a son direct and look in their eyes and say, well, what's going on, they'll kind of scowl and slope away. But if you drive them to a football match, you do sideways talking <laughs> because it's not threatening to them. And they, yeah. Anyway, that's... Just... <laughs>
0: it's tricky, isn't it, because people often, you know, look to technology, technological advancement to solve their problems, be it health or climate change or whatnot. And you mentioned that you have had pushback from people in the sympathy groups or in the experiments that you conducted who said, we don't need this, what we need is drugs. So how does small structures like sympathy groups complement the advances of science and even the politics?
1: They say that initially. I mean, you are right that when we first went even in Nepal, and discussed it with local groups. The first thing they say is, are you bringing us food or water supply or electricity? or?" High? And we said, no, you're supposed to have women's groups linked to your volunteers, none of them were running. We're going to talk through the issues and help you to come up with your own strategies. And at first there was a bit of scowling and, and stuff, but then quite quickly women who came to it They vote with their feet. They wouldn't walk for an hour or two to come to a meeting once a month unless they really enjoyed it. Mm. And imagine if you're, you know, 19, you've got a child, you're working from five in the morning until nine at night, collecting water, fodder, fuel, cooking, doing agricultural work, and not many friends, and you've had an arranged marriage. The opportunity to go to a group and spend a whole morning there and make friendships is very powerful. And we didn't find that lots of women would drop out of the groups and they came to appreciate them to such an extent that most of the groups stayed on after we left. In fact, when I went back to Nepal after the earthquake, the earthquake had affected the northern part of the district Mm. that we were in, we went back and went to find that all of our groups were active. All of them. You know, this was four years after we stopped funding anything. And so it leaves a kind of solidarity behind. And I would argue, why are we surprised about this? I mean, hunters hunting groups, gatherers gathering groups, Greek philosophy was done in groups, medieval craft guilds, farmers groups, credit groups. In fact, all of our women's groups in every society immediately said we need money Mm -hmm. for a crisis And so they set up credit groups or in Africa, in Malawi, they set up kitchen gardening and they did the kitchen gardening in order to sell the produce. And then they have money because a lot of them live in cashless societies. Theater, I mean, look at culture. Theater is a classic sympathy group. You have a director, you have about 12 to 15 people putting on a show. There's a strategic aim. They come together for lots of meetings and then they have a gift for their community or they make some money out of it. And in politics, Let's look at politics at the moment. Putin has a sympathy group of 15 people who are his absolute loyalists. Trump the same. I'm sure Mrs. changes main. quite a lot. <laughs> it does, though what's interesting about Trump is he loses the peripheral people, mm. the core people, half of whom are his family, actually, because that's, that's that the people true. who he mm-hmm. trusts. Yes, he's lost one or two of the real, but actually if you look behind the scenes at the people that fund him, mm. they've been with him throughout. So my point is that that is a very powerful structure and that, you know, we can use it in creative ways and people are very comfortable with it. They might be nervous, They might, you might want to sit and eat popcorn and watch the telly, but actually when you get to a group and you can start talking, as long as it's facilitated properly, it's fun.
2: Yes, you mentioned politics and you're organising an event in collaboration with Grand Challenges entitled Take Back Control, Empowering People in the Welfare State, which will be chaired, I believe, by Ed Miliband. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the policy implications of the book and, yes, what you think the discussion will involve ahead of the event and how your work complements some of the other speakers, in particular the psychiatry elements, which may come out as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. So one of the persons I gave the book to, actually even before it was released, was a friend of mine who lives in my neighbourhood. She's kind of part of my sympathy group. <laughs> yeah, called Melissa Benn, who is quite well-known. She's a journalist, and actually her father was mm. Tony Benn, the politician. Yeah. And she's a great advocate of education and things like this. And I, I showed her the book, and now she's well-connected, and, and she said, oh, Ed Miliband might be interested in this. Mm. So she made the contact. Okay. So he's coming over to chair this, and then somebody recommended Hilary Cotton, who I've not met, but has pursued a very similar line, not necessarily with scientific evaluation, but throughout her career, internationally and nationally, she's done a lot of work on radical health. Her latest book is called that, and she's going to talk about the way you can use social innovation and work with communities to produce a more, if you like, relational state, Hmm. one that isn't just about delivering vaccines or money, but also provide services that people want and feel involved in. And then I've invited Helen Kolaspe, who is a professor of psychiatry here at UCL. She's a national advisor to the government around how you make services sensitive to people with mental health which is a massive issue. I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it's more than two-thirds of people with mental health problems never get any care. So, you know, thinking about that, because they're a very vulnerable group, may lead us on to, to new ideas. In the book, I talk a little bit about different viewpoints about how you do this, and it cuts across the political spectrum. I mean, David Cameron had his big...
2: Big society. Big
1: society idea, which was Mm -hmm. to tap into uh, volunteerism. I I think that's kind of rather withered on the vine. Of course, he's not in power now, but certainly on the right, there is a lot of belief in volunteerism and the like, although some scepticism. Likewise, on the left, I mean, some people on the left will say this is fundamentally about justice and about benefits and about fair distribution of resources. And I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I I share those views. But even within that, for example, in the book, I talk about there's a guy called Jeff Mulgan, who was a big advisor to Blair and Brown, Mm. and also Mark Steers, who's an advisor to Ed Miliband. They take a slightly different view about how you do this. Mulgan says there are ways in which you can introduce a relational component. But there's a limit to what the government can do. Whereas Mark Steers argues, and I tend to agree with him, that you have to kind of create an ecology within which things can happen. The government doesn't do it. But for example, if people need to meet in groups, they need spaces to do it in. They may need some help with transport. You may need to pay some incentives to people who are running around doing that work, although they'll do it for very Mm. little. You don't want to infringe the labour rights of people who are full-time carers and the like. So you've got to get that balance right. But I think there's so much more we can do to create that ecology. And one final example on that is, having lived in Switzerland for three years, it was very interesting because Switzerland is the most productive economy in Europe and it has the most popular government And nobody knows who the government is, because they don't have a named prime minister. Well, they do, but nobody knows who they are. So it's a committee and it changes every year or two. But they're an incredibly decentralised state. So you have cantons below the government that are more powerful, and then below them communes. Now, I lived in a commune of Switzerland, and the facilities were amazing. They had... They would subsidise cycling, they would give you rebates for things that were green. They provided facilities for theatre and for meetings and for everything. And the other thing they have is four referenda a year. And you think, oh my God, look what the trouble we've got into with Brexit. <laughs> they do it four times a year, but they're very sensible. You see, the way they would have dealt with Brexit is interesting. They would have held the referendum and they would have said, right, it's fifty-two forty-eight, we're split. Mm. It was an advisory referendum, let's go back, think about it and see if we can come back with something that's more popular and that is more acceptable to people. And they negotiate that way. And in fact, Switzerland's never joined the European Union. No. For the very good reason that they... It's not a popular thing for them to do, but they've negotiated it very intensively. They're in the Schengen system, which Mm -hmm. means they can travel all around without passport. And they have open borders... And they don't have total free movement, but they've negotiated a lot of things. So anyway, it's all about local democracy.
2: Yeah, I thought it was staggering in the book when you said, I think it's about 77% of people are happy with the government in Switzerland. I thought you would never get that (laughs) in the UK. It's an incredible figure, incredibly happy. Yeah,
1: and I mean, look. I don't want to pretend that Switzerland is perfect in any way. They only gave the vote to women in 1971, believe it or not. And they are awash with uh, flight capital money, uh, which to a certain extent alleviates some of the stuff. But they they do have nationalised railways, they have socialised housing, they have a huge investment in education at all levels. It's a less classless society than Britain, I think.
2: So one of the focuses of the event will be about how do you empower the people in this kind of political aspect of it. But within the book, you say being told what to do by well-meaning outsiders is rarely effective. Yeah. So how do we ensure that sympathy groups um, and the kind of scientific trials and those sort of things have real impact without just preaching?
1: Well, exactly. In a sense, that's my whole point that yeah. it's about conversations, okay. not instruction.
2: So what are the mechanisms Well, we're the facilitate. worst people.
1: Look, I'm a doctor, <laughs> and I spent the first 15 years of my career telling people what to do and saying that you don't smoke and you don't drink and you don't do yeah. this and you don't do that. And when we did our first study, where we gave instruction to poor women in slums and it made no difference to them, I presented it actually in UCL and there was a woman in the audience who was a psychologist and she said, well, you didn't expect a change, did you? And I said, well, that's what we are taught at medical school, you give information. (laughs) And she said, yeah, but you've heard of uh, Bandura's social cognitive model, haven't you? And I kind of coughed and I said, well, I might have done, I can't. And she (laughs) said, look, it's all about peer pressure and it's about self-efficacy. I used to smoke, I smoked up for nearly 20 years after I qualified as a doctor. So I knew the risks. What made me give up? It wasn't being told what to do, but you know, first the Institute of Child Health banned smoking and then banned smoking on the wards. And then my wife gave up smoking. And then you go to a dinner party and you're told to leave the house. And suddenly you begin to think, well, other people are doing it, I can do it, and maybe it's a bad thing.
2: Because it was your sympathy and it's the, Well,
1: it was a peer pressure. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say I was in a specific group. Right. But, you know, if you look at groups that have been proven to actually show an impact, even in trials, Weight Watchers, mm. Alcoholics Anonymous, mm. a lot of other groups around that, the group solidarity works in different ways and it builds your capacity to change things mm-hmm. and gives you a chance to f- see people who are like you. And I think we need to do much more of that because, in a sense, the social component of our lives is less interactive than it was. Or it's it's shifted. I mean, I look, I love Twitter. I do Instagram now. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not on Facebook. I do email <laughs> all the time. And I'm always being shouted at to get off my phone. And I'm not saying that that is a terrible thing, but I do think that there is a need to create that ecology, particularly for people who need the exposure to a group.
0: How do we do that, though? Because you say we need to create an ecology, but does that come from a top-down approach? Is there anything at individual level that we can do to encourage that? Does the research community have a role in it?
1: Absolutely, and that's what I think should be done. I'll give you one example, which is of interest to me as a paediatrician. The one neglected area in paediatrics across the entire world is adolescence. I've got three children. They've all been through adolescence. And broadly speaking, children adore you and talk to you up until the age of 12. And then suddenly, they don't. (laughs) And the reason is, adolescents love two things, their peer group and their mobiles. Why? Because suddenly, they're at the social edge. Mm. I use that word, the social edge, because that's when you're moving into the edge of society. And also, it gives you an edge you know, you form a peer group, that's what's starting to happen. Now, I think the adolescent window from a paediatric point of view is immensely important because it's at that period between the age of 10 and 17 that you are starting to take decisions in your life about what you eat, about how you exercise, do you smoke, do you drink, about dealing with stress, about anxiety, about relationships, maybe even about sex and sexual relationships. And yet we don't do anything. Adolescents don't go to their GPs. I mean, they might if they're forced by their mother to get some (laughs) spot cream. So they are operating in their own world and getting the information that their particular groups give them. Now, my view is that we should be doing some experiments there to make use of the sympathy groups of adolescents, tap into their creativity, because they're enormously creative, Don't patronise them. Use facilitators that are maybe two or three years older than them. But discuss some of these issues. Iceland did a survey about 25 years ago where they were horrified at the numbers of adolescents who were binge drinking, playing truant, smoking, all the usual indicators. And they introduced a whole load of schemes, which even included curfews, and incentivizing parents to spend more time with them, but also a group component. And they've absolutely brought down hugely the numbers of kids that are binge drinking, smoking and the like. And so I think there are huge benefits to be obtained by this, but I, I've been banging on about this for years and I go to endless international meetings where everyone says, yes, we've got to invest in adolescence, but no one does. And partly it's because the experiments haven't been done. I
2: think it's partly as well, I was thinking about the impact of austerity in the UK on exactly that group of youth centres closing, for example, and the the physical spaces where these interactions can take place are often places that are closed first. Perhaps cynically because they're not a voting group, they're not going to be a danger, a threat to a politician in the immediate term, so again, What is the link to politics in the UK and how do we enact change?
1: Huge. I couldn't agree with you more. I Mm. think austerity has been a disaster. I think it makes no economic sense. The vast majority of economists agree that when you have a financial crisis like we had and private demand collapses, the government have to step in. Because if you don't, you get what Keynes called the paradox of thrift, Mm. which is that everyone stops spending, everyone starts saving, and you end up with a collapse in the economy and you don't grow your way out of your debt. So if you look at what's gone on over the last 10 years, and I blame Cameron and Osborne for starting all of this and sticking to it, it makes no sense. We've got the lowest growth rate in Europe. And although they've cut the deficit, the debt's doubled. And so you're absolutely right, the youth facilities, community groups, centers, all of the things that you would want have been slashed, Mm. health visitors, anything that's vaguely social. So there is a political dimension. And I'm not pretending that setting up sympathy groups will reverse politically regressive decisions. There is a, a clear level issue here that you take decisions at the national level, at the local level. But I do think part of strong governance is to create that ecology at a local level as well.
2: I suppose in terms of the funding level as well, there tends to be um, a move for funding bodies to fund a project for a year, two years yeah. at a local level. And then if it works, that's a good thing, but then it doesn't receive follow-on funding. Exactly. So that's also perpetuating the problem.
1: Yeah, you're right. If you look at what happened with teenage pregnancy, this work started about 20 years ago mm. and they invested in it and after about five or six years they did an evaluation and there was no change in teenage pregnancy levels. Interesting. They'd set up a lot of institutional mechanisms to build trust, to get younger women in to think about things, but it was taking a long time. What was interesting actually was that at that time the government said we're going to stick with this. Right logically you're right they could have turned around and said it hasn't worked Mm. and they stuck with it and then evaluation has shown this that teenage pregnancy rates started to fall and have steadily fallen and we've Mm. now got a much much lower rate whether Mm. that will reverse because of reversals in community spend and the like but to me it makes no sense I mean I do go up to the north a lot because my wife's from Yorkshire and Some of the poorer towns there are really suffering, you know, with unemployment, incredibly low wages. A lot of people are in work, but in food banks. Yes. You know, going to pawnbrokers, smoking for reasons that are linked to their despair and depression and economic circumstance. And again, I think there is a conspiracy between lack of local facilities and national policies that are not people-centred.
0: So it sounds like there's still a lot of work to be done.
1: Huge amount.
0: What's next for you then?
1: <laughs> well, I've spent my you know most of the last 30 years doing stuff in Nepal and Bangladesh and Malawi and, and India. And I come back and I see a lot of the same problems here now. Exactly. I think we're in a global world. And also I feel guilty about flying. You know, I've stopped eating red meat and I travel by train. I don't drive and all of that. But my carbon footprint has been terrible. And we've got to face some of those realities. That's another discussion. (laughs) Um, It's a whole other podcast. But I kind of think I really would like to see some of this transplanted, if you like, reverse innovation back into the UK. And so actually at the moment we've been having chats this week about trying to get a study rather like the Bangladesh one But done in in Britain in in London and in the north of England Uh, that will take some money and investment but I think it's going to be very very interesting people are telling me it won't work but then don't
2: they always tell you that that's a
1: challenge (laughs) they actually uh, I remember going to Malawi 20 years ago almost not quite and saying this and one of the academics there British academic who lived there for 30 years said won't work African women don't talk like women in Asia (laughs) <laughs> he only needed to go to the first women's group. I mean it was amazing. They all turned up, they all sang, they hung around for about four hours, they laughed, they gossiped, they joked, they moaned about their husbands, they do everything that women do in this country. <laughs> and of course people do it. But let's wait and see. We need to set it up, we need to do it in a as rigorous a way as possible. Now, some of the social scientists say, oh, you can't do randomised trials, it's much more context related, it's much more this. To me, a randomised trial is just a way of trying to get an impact, measure or not. If you get an impact, you need to know why it worked, and that's where all the social science comes in. And if it doesn't work, you need to know, was it implemented correctly, or does it fundamentally not work, or is there a lack of demand? The beauty of UCL is that we've got fantastic collaborations going on between social science, epidemiology, clinicians, and all the rest of it. So um, I'll let you know. I'll come back and tell you whether we managed to get the funding for this. If anyone's (laughs) listening who wants to (laughs) give me a million quid, we could get this going quite quickly.
0: Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. And thanks, everyone, for listening.
1: Thank you.